Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. What did I care if no one looked like me, had a last name that ended in a vowel, or ate Mexican food at home? This program features the work of 2017 writer Catalina Marie Cantu. She discussed her work with curator Jordan Amani Keith. Tell me about your, your Jack Straw writing project and how it's unfolding, perhaps in ways you have expected and ways you have not. Well, my project has been to create a new body of work on image challenges faced by young women of color who are bullied for their size or their complexion and what it means to become a bully to be to cope with their environment. Um, despite media pressure to be skinny and a size zero, and thanks to airbrushing, everybody looks like they're a size zero in the magazines and on social media, the majority of young women are at least a size 12, not petite or a plus size. They're in the middle. Where are their stories? Who's writing about them to encourage them to accept themselves, to make them feel they belong among others, and to give them control and a meaningful existence to build their self-esteem? That is my goal, to share their stories. And in the process of doing that, I found that I had to start with myself and the stories um, that I experienced growing up being bullied. Being bullied for your complexion and your size or one or the other? Uh, both. I was a, a skinny little brown girl with crooked teeth living in a white town. Mm. So I stood out. Hmm. I didn't have a straight nose. I didn't have blue eyes. And my hair wasn't, you know, straight either. So lot, lots of different differences that kids picked up on as well as their parents. So bullying um, as a concern now is something that's very forefronted. Uh, I remember growing up and we just teased and tormented one another, much like a Charlie Brown cartoons. Why is it important to address this now? I believe it's important because there are a lot of young women who don't feel good about themselves because of what they see in the media, what they see in magazines. And I want to help build bridges with with their stories, between my story and their stories on how they can feel better about themselves and have um, stronger self-images, positive images, that it's okay to be, you know, a size 12 or a size 14 and and to eat rice and beans and tortillas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why address uh, young adults versus, you know, um, adults right now who maybe we're still living with <laughs> the things that we were told as children by other children? Why why young adults? Because I, I thought about um, how hard it is to be a survivor of being bullied, and I actually look back into my own experiences on how I actually became a bully and made fun of people and and as a, a reflex to defend yourself. And it wasn't just, it's something that I, I'm rather ashamed about, actually, that I that I picked on people as a defensive measure so that they wouldn't pick on me. And 
not that adults uh, wouldn't enjoy reading these stories and, and sharing their experiences as well, but I'm hoping to build um, bridges with younger people to help them, particularly in this political, cultural environment that we live in now that is very challenging. <laughs> it is that, indeed. Um, one of my questions is how you came into the style of writing. Um, when in your life did you begin to write, and, and how has it carried you? My first writing experience was when I was about six years old, and I wrote a play that um, my brother and I were all the characters, and we used the uh, old uh, family curtains as costumes and performed it in the family's living room. And I always loved to read as a child. It was uh, quiet and rather shy. And then when I uh, you know, wrote short stories, never really did anything with them. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I was a founding member of Teatro del Piojo, which was the first Chicano guerrilla theater company in Washington state. And we wrote and performed 10-minute octos, which are short skits about social justice issues facing Spanish-speaking people. And I tried to continue in the oral traditions of my bilingual ancestors in telling stories. You call yourself a survivor of being bullied. Is there a particular moment that you remember surviving? I think, you know, being called a nigger in first grade after we moved up north from Texas. Mm. There's an irony to that. You moved from Texas to the north to get called the N-word? Right, right. Where'd you move to? Uh, uh, we moved to Olympia, Washington. Oh, not far from here. <laughs> That's right down the road. Changes the mythology of place, doesn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. So how did you survive that at first grade? What did that look like? Um, I was fortunate that there was a very kind uh, second grade teacher that was substituting, and she helped me through the situation. Uh, and then she would talk to me because I was picked on also by the first grade teacher. And she became the second grade teacher, and, I, and she was very kind to me. Uh, it made a big difference. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this work and tying that in with a second-grade teacher who made a big difference with something that could have really taken you off course and you might have never quite remembered when it started that you went off course? Where, where do you hope your work will land in terms of being shared with young adults? I hope that it either becomes a book or a graphic novel. Do you hope that it will be taught in the schools? That would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. I would feel blessed. Mm -hmm. You know, you already mentioned it, and I don't want to steal it, and it's in it. And we, we were referring to this individual as the, the one who shall not be named. But in, this, in these troubling times, how do you hope a white child will read this work? I'm hoping that a white child will read this work and it will give them a perspective, a more personal point of view, if you will, as far as these are names 
These are words that are associated with with hurtful and historically diabolical events and, and ways that people were treated. And there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy over this word. And hopefully it will give that white child a perspective on because somebody doesn't look like you doesn't mean that you have to be mean to them. You can try to be their friend Mm -hmm. and put yourself in their shoes. If you were the only white kid, how would you feel? Mm -hmm. If somebody came up and called you, you know, cracker or pecker word or whatever, bolillo Mm -hmm. in Spanish, Mm -hmm. um, we have to build bridges with each other in order to move forward in this in this day and age, despite the political rhetoric that would have us do otherwise. Now we'll hear a selection from Catalina's live reading. One, shoes. Sturdy shoes for school, said Mama. We can only afford one pair, and they have to last all year. These Buster Brown Oxfords are indestructible. And looky here, why the color? It almost matches her legs, said the clerk. Just add a matching sock. She'll look three inches taller. What do you think, little lady? Boxcar Oxfords, the color of dog dew, extended from my stovepipe legs. I like the red Mary Janes, I said. Dorothy's shoes without the sprinkles. I'll be real careful, Mama. An arched eyebrow, a toss of her curls, a white glove finger to her lips. Shoes hurt my feet. I refused to wear them at home. Being barefoot was freedom from Mama's rules to stress, sit, and walk like a little lady. Back home in Texas, my primos crowned me a tomboy because I loved to climb trees, did not scream when I picked up worms and bugs, and raced all the brown boys in the neighborhood red kids were my racing shoes. No one could catch me. But now I was going to school up north. Had to dress like a girl and wear ugly shoes that demanded to be double-tied. Their woven loops flounced with double Dutch rope, slick leather soles slicked on tree trunks and wet grass. My knees and shins festooned with band-aids awkward and anxious for my complexion, a complexion on the darker side of Mama's pale, just shy of three feet tall. At age six, my family nickname was Peanut. (laughs) Two, back home. Papa always referred to Texas as back home, His family had loved and lived in the Rio Grande Valley at the southern tip of Texas since long before Texas became a state. 
the U.S. border came to mi familia. Generation after generation, they continued to live back home. Back home, we can get pan dulce, chorizo, tamales, and fresh tortillas just down the street, Papa said. Up north, everything is canned, shipped, not fresh. In San Francisco, at the VA, Papa and Mama met as clerks with adjacent desks. After their Catalina Island honeymoon, they were laid off. Papa became a security card. Mama became pregnant with me. Back home, Tio Gustavo owned a dry cleaning business and offered Papa a job. We moved in with Abuela, Papa's madre. Mi primos and I threw lit matches down tarantula holes in her dirt yard, raced radio flyers down bumpy roads, and counted our mosquito bites. Our migration back home was a few years of heat hanging like laundry, mosquito bites totaling in the 90s, Spanish everywhere, and lots of familia adventures. Then we moved up north. Northwest postage stamp town of chalk people. Wherever my family want, they stopped us. Hey, you, where are you going? What are you? Papa, his wavy ebony hair, slick back, elegant, shark skin suit, tie, and shine shoes, met his inquisitors with a stony gaze. We are Americans. Chop people chortled and shook their pointed heads. Really? Seriously? Where are you people from? We escaped that time. What did I care if no one looked like me, had a last name that ended in a vowel, or ate Mexican food at home? Must be invisible. Invisible to their world. Shy, skinny, a brown toothpick in a milk sea, bobbing to survive the Moby Dicks. <laughs> Three, <coughs> complexion. Recess at Garfield Elementary. My Oxfords lead me through the crunch and crackle of russet and okra leaves. A salt-scented breeze whirls through my mahogany corkscrew curls. The curls bounce as I run toward the monkey bars, eager to hang upside down. Hey, nigger, yelled the boy. I grasp the cold, rough steel. Nigger, we just talking to you. Slow pivot, blue and green-eyed kids glare at me, my breath pinballs against my ribs. You calling me a nigger, I said. The girl grabs my hand and puts hers next to it. You ain't white. Must be a nigger like those folks on the television. Huh? That's the South. Don't matter. She grabs my curls. Your hair ain't straight like ours. She pulls hard. 
I kick her in the shins, speed toward my classroom. Please, dear God, don't let my Buster Browns slip. Four, tormentors. My first grade classroom door loomed. Faster and faster, my legs pumped me away from my tormentors. My Oxford slipped and slid on unswept leaves as I reached for the handrail. The door opened. What's the ruckus out here, said Miss Willer, my first grade teacher. Those kids call me a nigger and pull my hair, I said, pointing at me, and, and, they, and they, they're grabbing my clothes, and I felt the rip of my skirt slice the air. She kicked my leg, said my limping tormentor. It's bleeding. Enough of your shenanigans, Missy, Miss Willer said. She grabbed my ear and dragged me to face the corner. You people, always causing trouble. They ripped my new skirt my grandma made, I said. Look at her bony chicken legs, said my tormentor with a grin. She must have tripped on them running. Her friends joined her laughing and nodding. I know you children. You're good kids and come from decent families, said Mrs. Willer. I turned around, placed my hands on my hips, and said, so do I. Miss Willer rushed at me like a charging hippo. I jumped on the counter to escape the crash and boom of desk pushed aside. The hallway door whooshed open. Everything okay in here, Lucille? Uh, I mean, Miss Willer asked the new second grade teacher. Startled, Miss Willer lowered her fists, flexed her hands away from my head, removed an embroidered handkerchief from her sleeve, and dotted her neck and her forehead. Ah, Miss Jones, I was about to take this little troublemaker to the principal, she said. Her kind can be a problem. My last school was an inner city one, Miss Jones said. Let me help you with this situation. She walked toward me and whispered, Okay, little one, you have two choices. One, come with me now. Or two, I have to leave you with Miss Willer. No entiendo, I said, unsure if I could trust Miss Jones. Miss Willer smirked, can't even speak English. Calmete, mija said Miss Jones, ven conmigo. She extended her hand toward me with a wink. I slid down from my perch, grabbed her hand as the floor hugged my Buster Browns. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, 
the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jackstraw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.